0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This week on Bloomberg Studio 1.0, I sat down with one of the most prominent free agents in Silicon Valley. In 2014, Nikesh Arora was tapped to be heir to the SoftBank empire. He was raised in India, the son of an Indian Air Force officer, then came to the US for grad school. Then in 2004, he got the job of a lifetime. Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin hired Arora to help build its online ad powerhouse. He became one of the most sought after tech execs in the world and caught the eye of SoftBank founder Masayoshi Son. Sun hired him as president with a plan for Aurora to succeed him as CEO. But as Sun's retirement approached, Aurora says it became clear Sun wasn't quite ready to step down. Here's my conversation with former SoftBank president and Google chief business officer Nikesh Aurora. Joining me today on Bloomberg Studio 1.0, former SoftBank President and Google Chief Business Officer Nikesh Arora. Nikesh, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: I want to start at the beginning. You were born in India. Your dad was in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your upbringing.
1: I grew up in a lower middle class family in India, and uh, my father worked uh, for the Indian Air Force, like you mentioned. And we moved every few years from city to city, wherever his job took him, and. Uh, we grew up with some degree of discipline in the house because that's what you get when you work for somebody who works in the armed forces.
0: And you went to the India Institute of Technology. You studied electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. Did you want to be an engineer?
1: In the mid-'80s, when you were growing up in India, if, uh, you wanted to, if you wanted to get somewhere in life, you had a choice of being an engineer or being a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. So I think I went to the default mode of, of of uh, studying to be an engineer, uh, I think the core, during the course of my four years, I realized that this is fascinating. I like I like what I'm doing, but I'd like to do stuff related to that, uh, not just be a purely a technical person.
0: So, tell me about how you came to the United States and your initial experience here.
1: I got accepted at Northeastern. We had foreign exchange controls, so you could you can cash about two or three hundred dollars. So. I had 200 or $300 in my pocket, and I had uh, my father's entire retirement account of uh, $3,000. And I showed up here. He said, you can have it as long as you give it back to me before I need it.
0: And you knew you couldn't go back unless
1: no, you were no, a success? No. Well, unless I was able to pay him back.
0: How did you end up at Google?
1: Well, I'd been at T-Mobile. Uh, I had uh, done a small startup in the UK, which eventually got merged back into T-Mobile and I worked there for a few years. So I came back to the UK and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And one thing led to another. Um, I met Omid Kordasani, who we all know. Omid uh, and I hit it off. Omid uh, introduced me to Larry and Sergei, who happened to be visiting Europe uh, the week after. I spent uh, an hour walking around the British Museum with Sergey. Um, And then uh, he and Larry invited me to come to California, and I spent time meeting a whole bunch of people, many of them you know, Eric Schmidt, uh, Cheryl, Tim Armstrong, and that was it.
0: Now, Google had just gone public, but the business model was still to be set in stone, right? Well, the
1: business model was pretty robust. Google Mm -hmm. was doing uh, around $2 billion in revenue at that point in time. Uh, But I'd say the international operations and scaling was still very early. I think Tim Armstrong did a great job because uh, he actually, the United States team, which Tim ran, was doing uh, really well, and he would already put that into place. I think um, we took the model of me and Tim built, and we deployed it across Europe, and uh, you know, Tim and I used to compete on how big can we make the different regions grow to.
0: So Google has since become Alphabet, dominates the online ad market. What do you see as the biggest risks? to Google's business model now?
1: We fail to realize how much effort and execution it takes to build an advertising juggernaut, which you know Google has built and has in place, which works really well. And I think Facebook has built one, too. Uh, and I don't think there's a third. And I don't think there is a third platform out there which has the scale to be able to build what Google and Facebook have built. So I think uh, we're going to see more and more concentration at Google and Facebook in the advertising space, and I think that's not going away soon.
0: So would you say it's a duopoly, and is that okay?
1: It's a duopoly, yes, for now. There are many other players who are relevant in the advertising space, both uh, in offline and online, uh, whether it's going to be a Snapchat or Twitter or um, Pinterest in the future, or some of the, the traditional players who are actually doing a phenomenal job of transitioning from Uh, offline to online. So I think there will be many players in the space, yes. But uh, for the foreseeable future, will Google and Facebook be the largest two players? Yes.
0: Do you think there ever will be a third player and a third company that takes a third of that pie?
1: I think it's going to be hard. But I do think that there will be a collection of companies which, uh, amongst themselves, might command uh, as much uh, advertising share as Google or Facebook does. But it won't be one third company, at least for now.
0: Roger McNamee, who invested in Google and Facebook early, just wrote an op-ed in USA Today saying, quote, I'm terrified by the damage being done by these internet monopolies like gambling, nicotine, alcohol, or heroin. Facebook and Google, most importantly through YouTube, produce short-term happiness with serious negative consequences in the long term. The fault lies with advertising business models that drive companies to maximize attention at all costs, leading to ever more aggressive brain hacking. How do you respond to that?
1: Every marketer's dream is to try and get you to passionately love their brand,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I don't think it's any different in wanting that passion translated, whether you're doing online advertising or you're doing offline advertising. Now, um, you know the consumers are smart enough that they get bombarded by advertising and it overwhelms the primary purpose of what they went somewhere for, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's an online website, whether it's a video. They, they sort of vote by walking away.
0: You ran Google's European operations for five years. That's right. They've just gotten slapped with a $2.7 billion fine mm-hmm. by the EU. There are more inquiries open. How big a threat are these European regulatory issues?
1: I don't think they're a serious threat to Google's long-term business. Google is a phenomenally innovative company which works in so many different products that we all use. Uh, I don't think that any one conversation is a long-term threat. Uh, you know, if some conversation requires them to modify certain things for the future, that's between them and the regulatory authorities. But I think broadly speaking, Google is innovating in so many different areas and has it's more of a technology company that's constantly innovating than a company that has got one particular track that they're going to get trapped on.
0: Now, when it comes to Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft... What do you think is the biggest threat to Google?
1: I don't think about threats to Google since I don't work there anymore. I think all these three platforms have tremendous power of distribution. And uh, you know, whenever they introduce new services or new ideas, they can deploy that to a billion or two billion people around the world. That's huge. There has never been a platform which allows you to touch a billion or two billion people in a reasonably frictionless fashion.
0: Do you think Google can ever catch up to Amazon in the cloud?
1: You know, there's a very interesting uh, notion we seem to perpetrate. We all seem to want to talk about winners and losers. And we seem to think, like, when there's a winner, there's got to be a loser. And I think it's perfectly fine for multiple companies to exist in a space and do really well. I think we're so early in the journey of the cloud that in 10 years from now, you'll see that all the early sort of leads will normalize to some degree. If you look back and see the thousands of companies who have not even initiated their transition to the cloud, they eventually will have to end up there Mm -hmm. at some point in time. So I think we're so early that it won't matter.
0: All of these companies are making a big bet on original content. Is that a smart bet? Will it put too much of a dent in margins?
1: I'm not sure that this huge move by large companies to go into original content is going to result to a whole lot. Um, a lot of money gets spent in content. So yes, if you're willing to make a bet, which Netflix is doing, in the billions of dollars of year and make a business out of it, yes you might get somewhere in disrupting traditional content players. Eventually this will converge around one or two large players and There, I think you should not underestimate the platforms. Mm -hmm. And the platforms, as we discussed, are Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google. So as long as they can figure out a mechanism that they can use their platform to distribute content and allow the content creators and content providers to make a fair share in that process, I don't know how much all of them need to get into original content.
0: I hesitate to to pitch this as a win or lose, but how do you see the state of... AI and who's ahead and who will win there.
1: I think the AI conversation is as clear as mud. <laughs> I think uh, I think we're in early days of AI. A lot of areas where you want to apply AI, we have we don't have good data, so it's going to be garbage in, garbage out. The technical horsepower exists, but to apply it, we need to start really getting smart about collecting data and being able to utilize it. So. I don't think anybody is ahead.
0: Do you think Elon Musk's doomsday scenario is overblown or irresponsible, as Mark Zuckerberg says?
1: I love Elon. I think uh, he's one of the most interesting tech visionaries we have amongst us. And I think uh, we need people like him to make us have these conversations. But I think uh, he might be a little early on his prediction.
0: What about self-driving cars, which Tesla is working on, Google, Apple? What happened there?
1: I'm in the camp which thinks uh, it'll be a while before we see a large proliferation of self-driving cars around us. I think the economics, the regulation, the retooling required to get this to happen in scale is far, far, far away. And I think uh, we haven't even thought about the ownership models and the societal problems that it's going to cause. Or, And you know, how do you park these cars? Where do you put them? we may see people who can do closed-loop tests and show you that things are going to work. Uh, that could happen in short order. But I think large-scale deployment and having an impact on the rental business or the ride-hailing business, I think, is still f- further away than we think.
0: Should Uber uh, and Lyft and Didi and Google and Apple, should all these companies be working on self-driving cars? Or should they... Should I think they different answers for different else? companies.
1: Okay. I don't think the ride-hailing businesses should be worrying about making their own self-driving cars at this point in time in life. Why not? I think it's early. I think uh, the ride-hailing industry hasn't settled down. We haven't quite figured out uh, where that industry is going to stabilize. I think they have lots and lots of work to do in the logistics, in in the way they move cars from one place to the other, in managing supply and demand. And they're very early in their evolution. So I think if they focused on creating operational excellence in their current business, uh, they might be better off. And there's lots of OEMs, there's lots of tech companies working on self-driving cars. I think uh, a partnership approach might be better than trying to do it themselves.
0: I know you spent a lot of time thinking about the ride-hailing business. When you were at SoftBank, you put a massive bet on Didi Chuxing.
1: You know, both Masa and I had long conversations about ride-hailing, and... Uh, we were very impressed by the Uber model, but at that point in time, we felt uh, um, SoftBank would be better served investing in some of the other players. So we invested in Ola in India uh, very early, we invested in GrabTaxi uh, very early in Southeast Asia, and uh, we also partnered with Alibaba and Tencent and invested in Didi. And I think uh, subsequently, since I've left SoftBank, MASA has doubled down on many of those bets. So. Um, Look, I think when you can find an industry where you feel that somebody has developed a product or service from which there is no going back. So it's here to stay. It's a great place to be. It's like when things go from a nice to have to a must have in your life, you realize this is a winning scenario. And you understand that this is gonna get more and more popular over time. So I think uh, it's clear in China that DD is kind of the only player, so I think uh, you can see where if they keep executing well, uh, this is a huge opportunity for them. This also plays into the needs of the country where you don't want to have car ownership, you want more green cars, and it's much easier to take large players like DD and get them to work with the government on getting the green stuff So the electric cars.
0: Uber has pulled out of China. Uber has pulled out of Russia. Do you see them making those same decisions in India, in Southeast Asia, in Brazil?
1: Again, we're going back to our winner loser conversation well, because they did. Lose no, no, I, don't, I don't in totally China agree. They did that. Russia. I think I actually believe it's possible for two players to to coexist in a market and coexist happily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that requires the markets to. Rationalize and stabilize there are many industries where there are multiple players that's players that coexist you know like telecom services There are four players in the United States. They're 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 competing every day But some of them actually make large amounts of money look at the cable industry Then I think this is a very large market. So yes, can they do deals in those markets? I'm sure they can uh, Can they go it alone? I think they probably could
0: do you see that with uber and lyft here in the u.s. That this is a two company market
1: as of now, it is. Does that continue? <laughs>
0: uh,
1: well, uh, it's hard to tell, but uh, I think it should. It, it will continue for some time, uh, but as you know, there's so many, so many different conversations and moves going on in the market that uh, it's hard to call where it's going to settle down and stabilize.
0: Travis Kalanick leaving Uber, right call?
1: I think for now, yes. I think somebody needed to take responsibility for all the things we read about in the past year. And I think uh, leaders uh, are expected to step up and take responsibility for all the good and all the bad. Uh, I think, as we all have heard and read, they have some serious cultural issues. They have some issues in their operations, and somebody had to take responsibility. And I think uh, whether Travis took it or the board encouraged him to take it, I think that was the right decision.
0: Can that be fixed? Can the culture be changed? Can Uber accomplish what it needs to without a founder at the helm?
1: We all talk about Uber um, and the great service and product that it has created for people. Uh, I think the credit goes to the early team at Uber, their doggedness, their perseverance, their their ability to take on a whole bunch of things against all odds and build what is a great product for the consumer. Uh, Should they have done certain things differently? Yes. uh, And some of those things need to be fixed. Should they have a different culture based on everything we've read? Yes. Clearly, a leadership change is needed, and that is being talked about. I think it will be a challenge because in every situation that we see around us, the risk appetite changes uh, when you take a founder out of the equation. And the good news is Uber has multiple founders, and some of the others are still involved in the company, and one can hope that they can provide the backbone for the risk appetite while a new leader goes ahead and works with them on the cultural issues and tries to make Uber the company as good as the Uber the product.
0: Your name has been floated for the CEO job for Uber. Are you up for the job?
1: I think it's, uh, the board has made very clear they're looking for a CEO, who's an existing CEO or next ceo
0: Are you interested?
1: I think uh, I cannot answer that question since I have not had any conversations.
0: You have not had any conversations No, I have with not. Them. So what's your advice then to whoever ends up in that job?
1: The person, whoever ends up in that role, has both a cultural set of issues to fix and also has a whole series of operational things to do because at the end of the day, if you don't have operational excellence in a company, you actually have cultural problems as well. I think coupled with that, whoever is in that role also has to work on the leadership issues both, I think, within the company and the board. I think uh, they have a fractious board and they also have a, a management team uh, which needs a cohesive uh, leadership approach. What
0: game is Massa playing by approaching Uber to invest in Uber after investing in all Uber's rivals around the world? What's going on there?
1: I think that's a great question for Masa. You should have him on here and ask him that question.
0: What do you make of all the moves that he's making?
1: Masa, They're very
0: bold moves.
1: Yeah, so Masa is one amazing thing that, that Masa has, which I think I haven't seen anywhere else in the world. is like, as we get older, um, as we get more successful, our risk appetite changes. As hard as you try, not to change it, it does change. But Masa has zero change in his fiscaptite. He just wants to do bigger, bolder things. And uh, he's he's an amazing optimist. Uh, he he looks at, you know, you know, he has a 300-year vision uh, or a 50-year vision. He doesn't do things in three-month, six-month, nine-month thought processes. He's found some partners who he's working with to give him access to a huge amount of capital. And he's out there busy sowing the seeds for creating this cohesive information revolution, what I can see from where I stand.
0: You were the heir apparent. You were supposed to succeed him. Yes. What happened?
1: I think when uh, he and I got together, we had an amazing two years, and uh, we saw eye to eye on many things. In his life, when he turned 60, he was going to take a back seat and be more chairman-like and find a CEO to perpetrate his legacy and the legacy of SoftBank. So when he and I met when he was 57, he said, you know what, after an year of us being together, he said, I think you should, you would make a great successor. I said, great. As it came closer to him turning 60, I think uh, sometime this month, he realized that he wasn't done. And as is evident from the last year, uh, he seems to have renewed energy and uh, he definitely wants to see this uh, this information revolution through with all the investing that he's doing.
0: So, there were some shareholders that complained about you, said you had a conflict of interest, said you were overpaid. Did that play any role in you leaving? Did you ever get to the bottom of who was behind that?
1: No, and we never got to the bottom of who was behind that, but uh, the board established an independent committee, which looked at everything. Uh, they found no issues, but there were none. So. There was nothing to look at. Uh, and Masa uh, was very, very supportive throughout the entire process. Um, he tried to explain to people in the company um, that, you know, when you hire people from Silicon Valley, you have to pay them what they get paid in Silicon Valley. So <laughs> that's where we are.
0: Are you still a- involved in SoftBank at all? Are you no, still advising no,
1: them? No, no. I, I got done with that last month.
0: So then, from the outside... Yeah. I know you're supportive of the risk-taking, but can he really take these risks?
1: Well, I think he has the capital. He knows that some of them are going to work, work really well, and some of them are going to fail spectacularly. I think he believes he will do well, and his track record speaks for himself.
0: SoftBank is now, and, and Masa are potentially behind a, a, a T-Mobile merger with Sprint, which SoftBank owns. Is that a good idea? And what does it mean for consumers?
1: Do we need Four operators in a capital-intensive indus- industry where people are sucking down more and more bandwidth and want access anywhere and everywhere for everything that they do? Uh, maybe not. And you know, that's a question for the regulators, but uh, I think three players in that space would be perfectly fine. You now, whether the regulators allow that to happen, whether Masa and uh, Deutsche Telekom can get to a deal, is open for you to speculate as much as I can.
0: You led the way for SoftBank to invest in India, including the investments in Snapdeal. Some of the deals there are now in trouble. Were those bets wrong, or would they be doing better if you were there?
1: I think it's fair to say that uh, the euphoria in the Indian tech space uh, was driven by the huge success we saw of the various companies going public in China. I said, wait, if China can be so successful, with over a billion people, maybe we should be concentrating on India as well because it, this could very well be the next market to explode in a good way. Um, and we should be investing there. So I think valuations got run up in that market in the spaces where you'd seen success in China. Not so much in uh, the right hailing space because Masa was early, but in the e-commerce space with Flipkart and Snapdeal. I think the part which uh, people did not factor in is that... Uh, Jeff Bezos, decided that he did not want the same fate in India that uh, he had had in China. And when Jeff decides to come in and invest billions of dollars into a market, now you have one very well-funded player who has the technology and the expertise from around the world to really execute in a space. I think, uh, as you can see, Flipkart has generated the resources to do so, and Snapdeal was unable to in the process. So. That snap deal ended up with a similar backer who wanted to give them billions of dollars to go do it. I don't think it's clear right now who's going to win in the long term in the e-commerce space in India. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, as we've all learned, uh, one has to be cautious betting against Jeff Bezos.
0: There's global and political uncertainty right now. There are new scandals coming out of Washington every day. Should that impact investments, global tech investments?
1: We've always had different kinds of uncertainty in the market which which uh, change people's outlook in the short term. And that causes times of over-investment and times of underinvestment. Many people have not made money in times of over-investment when valuations are high and it's hard to find things to invest in because everybody wants to invest them. But it's been established again and again that when money is scarce and there's a lot of things to invest in, people are investing, you will make a lot of money if you take a contrarian bet. So, Right now, if you find great opportunities, I would not worry about the uncertainty. Although, I seem to think the uncertainty doesn't is not impacting valuations based on the way the stock market's moving and the private valuations are.
0: So what are you up to right now?
1: What am I up to? I'm, I just joined a board recently. I joined the board of Richemont, which mm. is different from tech, which is a luxury good segment, but they have a little bit of tech investing they're doing to try and see how their industry transforms. Um, I spent some time with some of the unicorns or decacorns in the valley helping their founders and some of their management teams. Like who? Um, It's better, uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss who, uh, but uh, it's many of the names that you're aware of and uh, I spend time with my two young kids.
0: Are you still investing? Personally?
1: Sparingly, yes.
0: So where are we going to see you next? What's next for you?
1: I don't know what's next for me. I think uh, I will continue to support uh, various entrepreneurs in the valley until something interesting um, rocks me off my uh, life of leisure and forces me to go work 80 hours a week.
0: Nikesh Arora, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you.
1: Thank you so much
0: for having me. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. This goes a long way to get the show in front of more listeners. If you missed our interviews with Sheryl Sandberg or Tim Cook, check them out in the Bloomberg Studio 1.0 library. And thanks to everyone who helped put this episode together, including Laura Batchelor, Danielle Culbertson, Candy Chang, Matt Soto, and the entire Bloomberg Studio 1.0 team.